0: So tonight I'd like to share with you a common teaching that's found in relationship to this topic of emptiness. And the teaching is on something called the two truths, uh, the ultimate truth and the conventional truth. And so I want to share with you about this teaching on the two truths and how it's connected with emptiness. And one of my concerns is if I give this talk and you leave feeling like you completely understand the two truths, it means that either I did a really bad job or you were asleep in some kind of way. (laughs) This is a tough subject. It's, um, we're getting into this, this tricky territory that the emptiness seems to convey. And, and some of it is because uh, so much of these teachings of emptiness, you might get a feeling of this already. Uh, is trying to undermine the usual way that we approach the world, the usual way we think about the world and the, the usual way we, that we frame it. So it should be have that sense of, of kind of being disruptive at times. And the way I'd like to begin is I'd like to begin with sharing a story, an image to help us uh, start to get an understanding of these two truths and how they're, they're interrelated with, with emptiness. And it's the story of this eccentric Zen monk by the name of Budai, or in Japanese it's uh, Putai. And you probably know the image of this monk. A lot of times it's, uh, the, you see these images of this laughing Buddha, you know, with the big belly and the, the shaved head and the, the the smiling, laughing gesture there. And he, so the story goes, was a, a monk that Lived around the tenth century in in China. And once upon a time Bu Dai was walking around and he always carried with him a cloth sack, usually hung over his shoulder. And a a Zen monastic came up to him and said, Kind of the classic question that you always hear in these Zen stories, right? What is the essence? Can you please tell me? Please tell me the essence of Buddhism. What is the essence of Buddhism? And Putai has his sack, and what does he do? He drops it. And so the Zen monk says, okay. So what's next? And Putai, lifts up his sack and begins to walk on. So tonight what I want to hopefully convey to you is that this this teaching on the two truths is really this art. It's the art of dropping, of letting go of the sack. And yet at the same time, which you could say, this letting go of the sac is letting go of the conventional. It's, it's letting go of our limited view of things. It's this realizing, the realization that is embedded in the ultimate truth. And yet at the same time, it's also this teaching of how to pick up the conventional world. How do you do that? How do you do this, this art of letting go and yet picking up? And this, this really is, is the essence of what these two truths are about. And when I uh, use these terms, conventional and ultimate, I'm using them in terms of how uh, this Indian monastic used them, Nagarjuna. Because these terms are also used in Abhidhamma l- literature, but they're, uh, they're referring to something actually quite different. And I find that the way the, that Nagarjuna uses these terms fits really well with some of the, the teachings that we find in early Buddhism. And where I'd like to begin is, if you were to ch- turn to your, your study guide on page 11, there, there is this uh, quote, quote number 31. The Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, a truth of worldly convention and an ultimate truth. Those who do not understand the distinction drawn between these two truths do not understand the Buddha's profound truth. Without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught. Without understanding the significance of the ultimate, liberation is not achieved. I do want to just share some things just about these three lines, because these three lines, it's, it's amazing that there has been so many commentaries written in so many schools of Buddhism just on these three lines. These three lines, you could say, have had such a huge impact in terms of, of later Buddhism. Really, if, if you reflect on it, thousands of years of study and reflection on these three lines and these three lines have shaped entirely different schools of Buddhism. So I, th- I think it's, it, it's kind of cool that we can take some time just with these three lines and see if we can get a sense of, of uh, what's shaped so much of, of, uh, of the understanding of, of emptiness. And really, that's all I'm going to be talking about is three lines this entire <laughs> evening. And to really slow down with them, because I think there's a lot in here. So let's start with those first two verses. So this is verse 8 and verse 9 just in this thing. The Buddha's teaching of the dharma is based on two truths, a truth of worldly convention and an ultimate truth. Those who do not understand the distinction but be- drawn between these two truths do not understand the Buddha's profound truth. So let's take some time to understand just these terms conventional truth and ultimate truth. And remember Conventional truth, I'm, I'm associating with this activity, this activity of picking up the sack. Picking up the sack of, of thoughts and concepts, constructions in that way. And the Sanskrit word is loka samvirti sachyam. And I want to go over, there's, you could say these, these uh, three parts to this. Loka, which some of you might know, it's the same uh, word in Pali, means world. And then the samvrti means uh, uh, conventions. So a lot of times, the way that these two words are uh, translated together is, it's it's kind of the world of of ordinary people, the, the world of, of 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 convention, of the conventional world, right? So the conventions that are used in our ordinary world by ordinary people like you and me. But also this this. Sanskrit word samvirti can also mean concealing. So there's something about this sack and holding up the sack that can conceal the way things really are. So it has this propensity to, to conceal my eyes so I'm not seeing so clearly. And so it can just be this simple thing of what is this? I don't mean this to be a trick question. A bell. <laughs> that, that's, that's a word that us ordinary folks use, right? Bell. And there we have, we have this, this concept, this convention. Or here it is, here's my body. Another convention that we can use day after day. And this is that world. It's the world of, convention, of, of conventions. In that way, it's every anything that we can name. Whenever I'm using language, that is the conventional world. And that's a maybe a simple way into it. The world of bell, and sack, and striker. And then the ultimate, the ultimate truth. As I said, it's it's dropping the sack. And all the ultimate is, and this can be uh, tricky to understand, it's simply the realization that things like Bell are just concepts. So the ultimate truth is a kind of realization. It's a kind of understanding, in particular, that comes with our meditation practice. You could say it's it's a kind of seeing, a seeing that frees our hearts and minds. So this is important to really recognize. I'm not saying the ultimate is some kind of place, right? It's not some kind of place where angels sing and bells ring. It's a realization. It's a scene that frees the heart. It's seeing that things are constructed. For example, with this, it's realizing that bell is just a construction, it's just something that dependently arises it arises out of a whole host of things out of an object like this out of a mind that's culturally situated that uses the english language that's in the context of using this with others so when i say bell there's an understanding and it arises independent in in um independence upon that it's constructed because it's just a notion, right? It could be, it could be a holder for a sack, <laughs> or it could be a bowl. We could take this in the kitchen and probably cook one of our soups, right, for the evening meal. Put it out there, and then we have a soup soup pot. Because those are just constructions. It's just conventions that we've all agreed upon. There's nothing inherently true about it. There's no as. Sally was saying, there's no kind of self-inherent existence of this, of of bellness in here. It's just dependent upon us using language and us coming together. And seeing that, and the seeing that is the ultimate. And how is this connected with emptiness? Emptiness this is seeing its empty nature. It's seeing that Bell is just a construction. It's just a concept. And that's what we've been talking about again and again, is how emptiness, another way that it's been talked about, is it's this act of seeing clearly. For example, we've been going over the five aggregates. Sally's been going over the five aggregates with us. Noticing that Actually, when we take a close look at experience, we can't find a self there, it's empty of that. It's empty of that construct and, and construction. The way I understand it is when I think of Bell, it's not as real as I, th- as I can take it to be, just as the self is not as real as I can take it to be. So I wanna point out something about when I drop the sack, when I'm having this realization, and this is very good to see. I drop the sack. It doesn't mean that it disappears. It means that I have a different relationship to it, that I see it for what it is. I'm not, I'm not hooked by it. I'm not confused by it in some kind of manner. You could say we're resting in a different place with experience. We're not, we're not sim- simply blind to it, we're seeing it differently. And to connect it a little bit now with just the practice, as we've been going over again and again, is as, as I can have this notion of, oh, here's my body. But what we're doing with our Vipassana practice, and this is what I want to point out, is that these two truths, this teaching is so intertwined with, your, with what you're already doing in your meditation, in your walking, and your sitting, and in between times. You don't even have to, have to add anything. It's just trying to bring out this, this quality of it. Here's my body. I pick that up sometimes. It's really great. I can talk about my body. I can talk about what's going on with it. I can have conversations with people. But I can get hooked by it because I can have an idea that it's something fixed and static. Yet it's always changing. And with the practice, I begin to see that. I begin to engage in the ultimate in this way. I get to see that it's just sensations coming and going. This flow of experience is what I call the body. The conventional, the concept, the body. The ultimate, sitting in meditation and noticing that it's just a construct. It's just an idea. So you might hear within this something that Sally mentioned today, which is that part of this teaching on emptiness is about deconstructing our experience. For example, around the body. Or even around the bell, to see that it's just an idea. So hopefully this is an initial sense of the ultimate and the conventional. And I'll continue to give you examples of this. But we have these, these two terms now, this ultimate and the conventional. Conventional, this world of concepts. The ultimate, the realization that it's just concepts. The insight that I—the mind makes this out to be more real than it actually is. So let's. So let's go on with this. I was thinking of bringing in another sutta quote, but I think that will just lead to more confusion. So let's uh, let's uh, let's shoot for clarity rather than confusion. But we'll see what happens. Okay, so let's go back to these um, these verses. Same verse. It's verse number. Um, it's same uh, the same quote, which is on page eleven, verse um, the the quote number thirty one. The Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths: a truth of worldly convention and an ultimate truth. Those who do not understand the distinction draw, drawn between these two truths do not understand the Buddha's profound truth. So I just want to take those first six words, the Buddha's teaching of the Dharma. And what I want to point out is, if, the, if these two truths, if the Buddha's teaching on the Dharma is based on these two truths, the way we have to connect these is to remember that this is all about suffering and the end of suffering. It's about our discontent and our freedom. And so in light of that, how does this notion of ultimate and conventional, how does it line up with this this task that we have to see suffering and to come to the end of suffering? Well, the problem is, the whole problem, I think what the Buddha was saying, is that we get blinded by the conventional world. I think it's more real than it actually is. I actually think that there's a self behind experience, that's real and solid. And then I suffer. Yet the solution is the realization that comes from the ultimate. It prevents me from taking things to be more real than they actually are. It's that act of dropping the sack. This is what we're examining we have a problem and here's the solution we don't see that experience is empty empty of selfhood or empty of 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 thingness or solidity so how can we see this this problem around conventions So one convention that we follow, hopefully we follow, that here in this country, what we do is we drive on the right side of the road, which is a really helpful convention. Now, if I got attached to that con- convention and I went to London, I could die. <laughs> so it's a, it's a. There's something really important about that convention, but if I get hooked to it then there can be something really dangerous about it so i have to be able to pick up the sack of the convention of riding on driving on the right side of the road but i also have to have the willingness to drop it because i know it's just a convention or even bell it's really helpful to know this is a bell but if i'm always demanding that things look that look like this are bells and then i impose that on other people that can be really oppressive And there's all kinds of cultural misunderstandings that happen around this that can create harm. Or even these conventions that we use so readily as if like man, woman, they can be helpful conventions. But hopefully we also know how confining they can be and how harmful they can be to people who feel like they don't really fit into those two small boxes. Because right? they're just constructions, they're just conventions. And to pose that, impose that on others can be really oppressive and harmful. And sometimes when we impose such constructs on ourselves, it can be so confining and harmful. So it's important, it's really important to learn how to drop the sack and to pick up the sack. Maybe just one story about this, because it can happen on such a subtle level. I remember my wife and I had gone over to uh some friends their their house for for dinner, and we were hanging out with their kids. They were I think seven years old and ten years old, and uh the The boy who was a little bit older was um just shyer and a little bit more introverted. And really getting the sense of him being this way. And yet the seven-year-old girl was just like all over the place, completely extroverted and like the, the star of the evening. And we left talking about them. And, and as we were talking about them, we realized w- what a confinement that could be is if we kept on thinking about them in that way. The shy one and the really, the, 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 the extroverted one. Because what does that do to people when we do that, especially at a young age? It shapes them in some kind of manner, doesn't it? And it can really be confining when we do that to others. For example, I had a, a friend who grew up in a family, and their parents had really clear ideas what the the, the children should do. So there was one who was um, interested in playing piano. So she would be playing piano, and then... Um, she said that she'd get interested in, in drawing uh, or interested in um, mathematics. And the parents would say, you're no good at that. You're, you're the musician in the, in the family. Or if the one who was really good at school got interested in music, it'd be like, it's fine if you play around with that, but your skills are w- when in um, language and mathematics. And that's an extreme family. I want to acknowledge that. But it's the, it's the use of constructs to confine. And it'd be one thing if we did that to each other, but have you noticed how we do that to ourselves? It's just amazing. And all those constructs can be so great to pick up at times. So important to be able to let go, to realize they're not as real as we make them out to be. Hopefully you can hear the freedom that's in this to really understand the, the, these two truths about how we interact with others and ourselves. Okay, let's see if we can go back to these lines again. The Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, a truth of worldly convention and an ultimate truth. So I want to point out something. These are two truths. And Nagarjuna doesn't say that the conventional is less truthful than the ultimate. So this is kind of a trip. Because we can usually think, well, the ultimate, when I drop the sack, that's really what's true. And the conventional is just sort of kind of true. But as far as I know, he doesn't use any Sanskrit word that says sort of (laughs) kind of. He uses the word truth. I would use sort of kind of, but he didn't. So what could he mean by this? What, what could we get out of this in terms of understanding this path? I take this word truth, satya, not so much a truth, capital T truth, but it's that which leads to my freedom. Truth in the sense of this is the true way to my freedom. Remember, this is a very particular context. We're not talking philosophy here. We're talking about our freedom. Freedom for ourselves and and for hopefully the society that we live in. So truth in that the conventional plays a very important role in my freedom, and so does the ultimate. So both of these are essential for our freedom and our practice. And I I just want to give some examples of this, again, to make it, Make it something that's hopefully accessible. And how we utilize these two perspectives in our practice, sometimes just one moment after another. Luckily this came to me during the 315 sit this afternoon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So here I am, I came in and I sat with all of you at the 315 sitting meditation. Setting the mind is starting to settle and collect. And you might notice, sometimes the mind starts to settle and collect. And I had this really great idea for my talk tonight, which is good. It's because it was 3.15, I still had some time to figure out this talk. And there was some excitement about it. But then what came with this is the sense, and maybe you sometimes feel this, you have some great idea in your sitting meditation. It's like, I totally have to remember this. How am I going to remember this? But I still want to kind of sit, but I want to remember it too. So here I am with this kind of dilemma of like wanting to sit and just be here and then wanting to remember this great idea that felt like it brought together my entire talk. And then there was the moment of practice kicking in. Oh, worry. Oh, this is worry. Interesting. Worry. Worry is here. So I want to point out just what happened in that moment because it's kind of a combination in the moment of being able to say worry, which remember, this is a mental formation, just to connect it into the, what we were looking at in terms of the five khandhas. Oh, this isn't me. This is an arising of a state of mind. And for me, when I can be labeling within my meditation, it embodies this quality of seeing that this is not me, right? This is, this is not me. This is not mine, this I am not. This is not myself, it's just worry. And sometimes this, this insight into not self can always be thought of as something that happens in such a dramatic way. But I wanna point out labeling like that is the process of disidentification. It is, it is the realization that this is not as real as I think it to be. It's just, it's just a, a state of mind. And I could feel the switch, right? I was lost in the worrying, and all those thoughts were about me. And then that changed to worry, worries arising. And right there, I could feel the freedom that comes with the ultimate of seeing that. So here we have it. We have these two truths, which I want to point out is that worry is still a construction, right? I'm using that. I'm using language, I'm using the conventional. And there was something really true about it in the sense it led to my freedom. Yet it was letting me see clearly the ultimate. And here I am utilizing both of these. And maybe I want to point out the next step too, which I think it can be kind of interesting, is from the worry, then there was the directing, which is actually quite interesting, of dropping that label and just simply feeling the flow of sensations that seem to comprise that word worry. And to me, sometimes when I touch that part of my experience, there's a kind of intimacy that happens with experience that is really quite inexplicable, that seems to be pointing me more and more towards this freedom, towards this freedom of the ultimate. I want to point out a few other things about this as well. I do want to point out too is that I totally forgot about that great idea. (laughs) So so if it feels like this talk isn't coming together, you know why. (laughs) Well, But it's kind of heartening to think. Now I think that um, now as my Vipassana practice probably deepens and deepens, my talks will get worse and worse. (laughs) So if you hear my talks on Dharmasi getting worse and worse, you think, man, his practice must be so deep right now. (laughs) Because I'm just forgetting everything. So I want to point out some things around um, the wrong use of emptiness or you could say the wrong use of the ultimate truth is uh, when I said worry I wasn't dismissing it. I wasn't saying oh worry this doesn't matter that's just a construction. That convention is really helpful. The convention of emotional language has been super helpful for my own life. When I think back about my, my history of practice, one of the things I've gained through it is just emotional intelligence, starting to come into what it is to be an emotional being. And what I needed for that was the language, the language of emotions. Actually, there's a, a poem by Leonard Cohen, and, and there's just these two lines that put it so well. He says, I know your burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night. The guru says it's empty, but that doesn't mean it's light. (laughs) So important to remember that. Right, your burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night and it is empty. It is empty of the concepts and constructions that you impose around that experience. But it doesn't mean it's light. I'm not here to dismiss or discount my own suffering or the suffering of another. I'm here to be, be here with it, to, to show up for it. And I use the practice of emptiness so that I can show up for it in the most authentic way possible. This is such an important, because I think that's the danger of these teachings of emptiness is this thing of that none of it matters. Actually, all of it matters. All of it matters because all of it is an opportunity towards awakening, towards a freedom, if we relate to it skillfully in these ways. I guess one other thing I, I want to point out about how Nagarjuna talks about the ultimate just a little bit. And let me see how to approach this. What you notice about the way I'm sharing with you about the ultimate truth is I'm situated in, in a way of seeing clearly. And um, a realization that things are not as real as, they, as we take them to be, rather than it being some kind of state or experience. And this is tricky because, because sometimes uh, when we talk about the ultimate or talk about freedom, there is language that's used around it, like Nibbana. And the Buddha kind of points to this, this, whatever this ultimate is. But I want to point out how in line the Buddha and Nagarjuna are around this. You know, it's really quite interesting the language the Buddha uses around full awakening. So what's often the definition that we're given? A mind that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. When we think about that definition, it's not like the most satisfying definition, right? It's all about absences of things. Or what's, what's freedom or awakening or this ultimate? It's the deathless. Does that give you a clearer picture of it? <laughs> or the unborn? <laughs> the Buddha was quite, quite cagey about talking about awakening. And Nagarjuna isn't even going to use words around it. He's just giving us a practical path that leads to this freedom. It's the scene that he's interested in reinforcing. Not some other kind of construction of some kind of story, but what's going to lead us there to this freedom. Where the mind is not clinging to anything whatsoever. So uh, onward with this a little bit. What I'd like to do now is, again, get a sense of this ultimate and conventional and the practicality of these—that these are two truths—now around the self. Luckily, a Guy spoke to us last night about um, how the self is not as real as we think it is. Anatta, showing how we construct it. Right? We have this sense that of, of a sense of continuity of independence of control and singleness and he went over these kind of facets of how the mind constructs a self that that gives us this feeling that like that we continue that we're some kind of independent entity and this is so much of what we are looking at through the five aggregates we're grasping on to certain aspects of experience and saying me mine this is this practice of the ultimate of seeing that it's not as real as I think it is. And at the same time, I wanna point out that there's a place for the use of the conventional. There's a place to actually pick up this notion of self and it is intertwined within our practice. And so I wanna talk about that piece because I know Guy gave his talk last night and now all of you understand the deconstruction of the self, so now we can move on, right? And the, the Buddha is really clear about this. For example, in the Potapada Sutta, he's, he's talking to this fellow Chitta, the uh, Citta, the, uh, the elephant trainer's son. And they're having this whole conversation about this word self, or these different kinds of selves. And in the middle of the conversation, the Buddha kind of stops the conversation and wants to clarify this with Chitta. He says, Chitta these are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. This notion of self—it's—it's it's an expression. It's a turn, in, turn, turn of speech. Turn of speech. It's in common use. We just need to use it without misapprehending it, without making it more solid than it really is. It's not as real and as substantial as I think it is. And yet it has a purpose. And one purpose that we find within our practice is that it can help us cultivate this, this sense of positive regard for ourselves. When you reflect on it, so much of, for example, a a practice like loving kindness towards ourself or self-compassion cultivates that, doesn't it? That I can get to a place where I can start to say, I quite like myself. That's a good thing. Because of this habitual tendency of always being so self-critical. And it can really help, I think, undermined uh, an unskillful use of emptiness. Again, another wrong use of emptiness, which I want to point out. And I remember seeing this, this kind of wrong use of this teaching in my own practice where I realized one of the reasons I wanted to practice so diligently is because I wanted to be invisible. I actually wanted to disappear. And it was because I didn't like myself. And I thought, if I did a practice where I could disappear, then the appearance of this person that I hate so much won't be there. So maybe, maybe if I do this practice, I'll go away in some way, and then I'll be free. You ever have that impulse? If only this personality could go away, then then my life would be great. And they had, there's this thing of Buddhism, they talk about not-self, maybe this is for me. And what I realized is what was so important along with seeing through the, the empty nature of the self was also at the same time cultivating a strong sense of self, a strong construct of self. This was actually essential for my practice. It gave the stability to see through that construction, but I needed to utilize that construction. And I I want to share with you a poem that I feel exemplifies this process of using the conventional, that there's a place for constructs. And it's a poem by May Sarton uh, entitled Now I Become Myself. And I just want to share with you a a part of it. But I I want to say a little bit about May Sarton because uh, it helps situate this poem. So May Sarton was, um, she was in a same-sex relationship in the 1940s and 1950s. So I just want you to imagine that. Living in this country and not following the heterosexual norm in the 40s and 50s, such a challenge. I mean, even now, but even more so in the 40s and 50s. And... It can be so challenging when we're not in the dominant part of a culture or a society to not feel like we're invisible or that there's a demand upon us to be invisible. And she wrote this uh, poem during that time of her life. And actually, in the 1960s, when she actually openly started to write about um, lesbianism, she her greatest fear was that it would destroy her career to actually come out. So I hope you can you can hear this this also the, this pull of invisibility in some kind of way that can be so harmful. So she begins her poem. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning. (laughs) Hurry, you'll be dead before, before what? Before you reach the morning or the end of the poem is clear or love safe in the walled city. Now to stand still, to be here, to feel my own weight And density. It's so important to feel our own weight and density, even if it's just a sack, a construction that comes and goes, to actually sense into that. It gives a kind of relative stability to allow us to open up to the instability of this world. And so important, especially if we're, we're in some ways like May Sarton, if, if there's some way that we situate ourselves that's been marginalized, that isn't in the dominant part of the world that we live in, where we're always getting these messages that we're invisible or that we don't count. Wow, wow. so important to counteract that, to feel a kind of weight and density. And maybe even more importantly, to feel our own weight and density in terms of if we're situated in the places where we are part of the dominant group. Because boy, we can really harm people with that kind of weight and density, that kind of sack of where there is a kind of sense of self that has a weight and density that we can be blind to, can be so oppressive in that way, in terms of where we have our privileges or in the dominant group being whites or male or heterosexual or being able to speak language or having an abled body. Hopefully you can hear within this, these strands of how convention, the conventional world is so important for our practice. And it is, it's just a convention. They're just constructs important for how I carry myself but also how I ethically carry myself in the world. And then just to tag along on this, just one other thing about conventions, which, again, this will inter- interplay, hopefully you'll see, in terms of just the importance of the ethical around this, which is so tied to our freedom. As I also want to point out that these conventions are not fixed. They're fluid. They change. And they can be really useful tools. For example, one of the conventions that I just mentioned around our weight and density would be around race, around having and picking up this construction. For example, for me, whiteness. It's just a construct, right? And it's an interesting construct. The reason why it's so such an interesting construct is because of its history of it. There's actually a, a wonderful book, I think it was written in the 90s, by Theodore Allen called The Invention of the White Race. And really outlining how, you know, whiteness came out of creating, intentionally creating a racialized um, society that really could help reinforce and help support slavery. It was a way in the 1600s, some people attributed, Theodore Allen's attributing it to the, the Bacon's Rebellion where there was this conscious, um, what's thought to be a conscious act of, of trying to divide kind of indentured service servants and slaves that were both white and black but to start to divide them along skin color. And it, was, it made it much easier to oppress um, African-Americans in terms of that. So, so whiteness has such, a, um, such an oppressive history to it, such a complicated history. Yet it has a malleability to it because it also can be picked up in such skillful ways What I notice is when I pick up whiteness, it allows me to see the places where I can be blind, blind to ethical situations, blind to kind of systemic forces of oppression. The fluidity of conventions. Again, this is so important for our practice. It's not just about getting rid of constructs. It's about knowing how to pick up that sack skillfully and knowing when to drop it. so hopefully we have the fir- first two verses down, right? The Buddha's down, back to the uh, quote. We've got through two, I think. Hopefully we've got through two. The Buddha's teaching of the Dharma is based on two truths, the truth of worldly convention and an ultimate truth. Those who do not understand the distinction drawn between these two truths do not understand the Buddha's profound truth. Remembering, right, the world of convention, Bell. This is, this is the conventional, conventional world, the, the conventional truth. Ultimate truth is realizing that that is just a construct. It's the seeing clearly, ultimate, conventional. And it's entwined, it's, it's captured in the Buddha's teaching of the Dharma that this is about suffering and the end of suffering. This is not about philosophy. This leads to my freedom and the freedom of others. Okay, the last line. Without a foundation in the conventional, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught. Okay, let's just get that that first thing. Okay, so without a foundation in the conventional, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught. So here I am. I'm explaining all this to you through language. I'm utilizing the conventional to open up the space towards the ultimate. These are so intertwined. And I gave you this example. I'm using the conventional all the time to, 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 to have this scene clearly. Oh, worry. And you can do this again and again in your, in your um, meditation, in the walking meditation. You're doing the walking meditation. And it can be like, oh, here's my body moving. And then it can boil down to, oh, pressure. I'm utilizing a construct, pressure because it helps break down this whole idea that here my body is moving to the undulation, the flowing of pressure coming and going on the bottoms of the feet. Utilizing the conventional to open up to the ultimate, to open up to the scene clearly. The common thing is it's the finger pointing to the moon. This is is what it is. All of this is, is pointing to the ultimate. Actually, there, there's a, uh, actually a Tibetan teacher that all of the teachers have practiced with, Sokni Rinpoche. And I remember I did a month-long retreat with him. And he must have said this one phrase I'm going to share, share with you probably four or five times a day. He was obsessed with this one <laughs> phrase that really captures this sense of how the conventional and ultimate work together in this way. That it's through the conventional that we have a sense of the, the ultimate. And he said that the Buddha, at least the the Buddha of... Tibetan Buddhism once said, my dreamlike form appears to dreamlike beings to show show them the dreamlike path that leads to dreamlike enlightenment. My dreamlike form appears to dreamlike beings (laughs) to show them the dreamlike path that leads to dreamlike enlightenment. the world of convention, the Buddha's body speaking to the bodies of others about this path and awakening, all dreamlike. They're just conventions that lead to the ultimate. So we utilize language in terms of that. And then the last part, without understanding the significance of the ultimate, liberation is not achieved. I need to see, the mind needs to see emptiness again and again and again in all these different ways. If it's the simple label worry or pressure or sensation to cut through this idea of me, or just seeing that this is constructed, it's not a bell. That's just a concept, to see that again and again and again. That's what the the mind needs to engage in, is the scene that frees for liberation to arise. So I'm going to repeat just one more thing, just to give a, another angle of this. Picking up the sack and dropping the sack. And to remember that this doesn't mean that stuff doesn't exist. That's not what emptiness is about. It's about seeing that it's just constructed. And again, this, uh, our minds can have sense of ten- such a tendency to go towards this nihilistic view that everything is meaningless in some kind of way. But it's not like that, and it can be really quite confusing. And I'd like to share with you actually a a description that can quite sound like a view of emptiness that's not. You probably know this this view. It's from um, Shakespeare from the play Macbeth. It's Macbeth speaking. He says, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour on the, upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Macbeth is sharing this when his whole world is falling apart and it leaves him with this feeling that life is meaningless. And so all of it signifies nothing to him. And how this is different is that we're doing this for a very particular intention, and that's for freedom, for freedom for ourselves and for others. And within that, there can be great meaning to this exploration of emptiness, because it can profoundly open the heart. So may our exploration of the two truths of emptiness lead to the liberation of all beings. Okay, so let's just uh, sit for a moment here.